0: Chapter 10, Looking for the Exit Human beings were designed to live sanely, and sanity always returns. The world rights itself. Paul Roussetta Begina, Manager, Hotel Rwanda Shortly after my national shaming in the 2008 Canadian election, a close friend and I are lingering at the Salisbury House a retro diner where Winnipegers have been eating burgers and solving their problems for five generations. Between bites she listens patiently to my whining. Who was going to give me work now? What would I do with my time? What use could I find for all the information and perspective I'd collected? I had detailed notebooks going back 22 years. I yammer on and on, aware of how tedious I sound, but unable to stop. Well, my friend offers helpfully, you can always write some letters to the editor. Lots of people read that stuff, don't they? She watches in confusion and dismay as I lose it. My face crumples, eyes behind my hands. I sob like a divorcee in a soap opera. My friend has crystallized my new status as an outcast. I'm just not prepared for the emotional tumult that follows my spectacular outing as an alleged conspiracy monger and anti-Semite. Not only that, I was accused of being unbalanced, crazy, and hateful. Where am I supposed to feel welcome? The first... Post pariah thing I do is withdraw into myself. With a population under 800,000, Winnipeg has kept some of the coziness of a small town. Once you've established a profile, people often recognize you, usually in an understated way a smile, a nod, a word or two of encouragement or correction. I enjoyed this low key appreciation. I found it a heartening reassurance that I was doing real work, especially since radio journalism is so ephemeral. It disappears as soon as it's produced. Now, I don't want to leave the house. I avoid eye contact over the tomatoes at Foodland, where former admirers might be glaring at me or discreetly looking the other way. In my home office, I had customarily spent a couple of hours every day reading newspapers and scanning my favorite and my least favorite news and current affairs sites. It was a pleasant task. My ritual now feels downright foolish. Scrolling through the Globe and Mail, the National Post, the Toronto Star, the Winnipeg Free Press, and the Winnipeg Sun, scanning international websites... I had always assumed I was keeping up with my colleagues. Now I felt like a prowler skulking around the scene of a crime. The credibility and the comradeship I had felt with my colleagues are broken. And what about earning a living? Since leaving the CBC to freelance, I have enjoyed some really exciting projects. When Winnipeg's Chinese Multicultural Association wanted a writer to tell the stories of exceptional immigrants who changed the face of the city, they hired me. The resulting book was called We Chose Canada. When a group of Winnipeg women decided to raise funds for the Canadian Museum for Human Rights and needed a centerpiece video, they invited me to create it. The short film outlined the careers of five outstanding local women and raised $75,000 for the museum. Neither project paid very well, but they were eminently worthwhile. I continued to speak in various groups about critical literacy and media reform. I chaired, I paneled, I facilitated, meeting thoughtful people and trading worldviews. This was stimulating, spontaneous, self-employed life. It's what I'd hoped for after 22 years with Canada's National Broadcasting Corporation. But the defamation inflicted on me has put an end to that. My disappearance from public life is almost instantaneous. Days after my national embarrassment, I'm quietly dropped from a national conference at which I had committed to speak. Next, a magazine assignment is cancelled for lack of budget. Invitations to contribute to public events cease abruptly. I know from personal reports that my name comes up in groups planning events or campaigns and is very quickly put aside. Not because people accept the judgment stemming from the election, but, as I hear many times, they just don't want to deal with the people who do. Respectable groups can't be seen to support me. And why bother when other capable people, untainted and untroublesome, are available? Defamation works subtly, but powerfully. Doing any routine journalism I can get my hands on is now more difficult. Researching an article, I arranged an interview with Brian Bowman, a high-profile lawyer, then specializing in Internet privacy. He's enthusiastic at first, but calls back the next day to cancel. He is candid and apologetic. He's been told that his senior partners don't want the firm's name in my story. It could be bad for business. Usually, law firms are only too happy to get free publicity. Brian Bowman became mayor of Winnipeg in 2014. Well, damn. Scratch another name from my sources list. At night, a parade of bad dreams wakes me up abruptly in feverish nausea. Often they're the inverse of the joy I've always found in the water. A pool, a lake, an ocean, always my favorite place to be. Now, water is inflicting fear in endlessly inventive ways. My legs are caught in scummy weeds dragging me down. A friendly beach drops away, leaving me in deep water with an aggressive current. One minute, I'm swimming, gliding through the water, breathing smoothly, and then I can't breathe at all. Water torture. The most confusing and persistent of my sleep misadventures is my bizarre overcoat dream. Semi-darkness. I'm part of a bustling backstage crowd preparing for a show. It's a rehearsal for a live broadcast. Technicians doing sound and light checks, make-up people doing touch-ups. This is familiar territory. I'll be hosting the show as I have hundreds of shows like it, but I am wandering around asking everyone what I'm supposed to do. No one has given me a script. I have no notes. I'm wearing a belted beige raincoat, but there's no presentable clothes under it. I have nothing to wear and nothing to say, but nobody can see this. Nobody can hear me begging for help. I'm desperate, invisible, more and more frantic as the clock runs down. Why doesn't somebody help me? I want to cry, but that would be unprofessional. I wake up in a heart-pounding panic, and being awake is little better. Alone and unoccupied, I find myself brooding on the appalling ease with which my principal attackers disappeared me and my work. They vaporized my career with a few phone calls and a couple of press releases. I believe that what had happened to me, an uninformed attack on my journalism, could happen to any journalist in Canada. At the same time, I have to face the fact that I'd been disappeared with the enthusiastic cooperation of my media colleagues. I rationalized that part of the story. A federal election is a peculiar kind of frenzy. Nobody had time to talk to me. Most didn't realize I was a journalist. I had been incorrectly described as a blogger, and no one bothered to check. My media colleagues couldn't see how, when they lined up with my defamers, they were actually attacking themselves. Their work was as vulnerable to defamation and demonization as mine. I had hoped that running for Parliament would at the very least add to my professional qualifications. Experiencing a federal election as a candidate could give me a valuable inside the tent point of view when commenting on Canadian politics. Instead, I've lost the credibility built up over decades of journalism. But I worry especially about the resentment and the anger I see in my sons since I've been deemed unfit to run for Parliament. I've raised the two of them, now grown men, to be empathic, question authority, and confront injustice enthusiastically. And they prove to be better than good at it. Patrick is a drummer and lyricist with one after another offensively named punk bands and boasts probably the world's largest collection of anti-authoritarian t-shirts. He can always be counted on to find and confront the elephant in any given room. Jeff is a playwright and performer with several successful justice-oriented productions behind him, notably The Big Toke, a savagely funny critique of the war on cannabis, which toured Canada's fringe theatre circuit back in 2000. He also wrote and toured with The Prince of Pauper's an insightful dramatization of the murder of young Pakistani carpet slave Iqbal Masih, and how it inspired Craig Kielberger and his international work. This was years before a government funding scandal rocked the WE charity. I had impressed on my sons the importance of being true to their values, owning their opinions, and knowing their actions could make a difference, even if that difference isn't immediately obvious. Now they've seen my life blow up in my face, and their distress makes my own much harder to bear. Looking back, it was the breakdown over burgers that hardened my depression into anger, an emotion a therapist would later describe as a breakthrough. The expert called it a genuine step forward, clearly preferable to the low-grade anguish in which I'd been simmering since the election. Depression, the therapist explained, is anger turned inwards. Finding and facing that anger is the beginning of recovery. And I am angry. I'm angry because I've been so easily moved into the space reserved for ignorant and malicious people. I'm angry that I've been used to give new energy to anti-Semitism, an ideology I loathe. I'm angry that my voice has been silenced. Very gradually, a memory planted early in my heart by my father struggles to the surface. You there, whimpering in the corner, try showing some character. Long before my political fiasco, I had interviewed author and life coach Tony Robbins for a short radio piece. He told me, change your posture, change your life. From a distance, that advice seemed glib. But our close up conversation convinced me of its wisdom. You can't fight whatever needs fighting from a fetal position. Could it be possible to redeem my life and prevent this from happening to other journalists? True, my attackers in politics, media, and offended organizations have plenty of money, and I don't. Yes, They all have the power to label people and walk away without looking back. Granted, thanks to the Internet, my humiliation as an anti-Semite and a 9-11 nutjob will probably outlive me, no matter what I do. But no matter how defeated I feel, I can't accept what happened. I can't, and I won't. To surrender is unthinkable. I can't see the path, but there has to be a way out of this. I just have to find it. Looking at the fat file of damning news clippings I've saved, I'm certain I have a defamation case, maybe a freedom of speech case too. I know enough about the legal system to understand that when you charge someone with an injustice and demand a remedy, you put yourself on trial. Friends in the justice system warned me that it's like following a drowning with a firing squad. If I can find a lawyer willing to take my case, the only way I can raise legal fees is to mortgage my house. I remember a joke CBC colleague Peter Zosky made at the Winnipeg Folk Festival on one of the many summer evenings he had hosted the main stage concert. We knew each other from the days I had the honor of filling in for him as host of Morningside. His smoky voice rumbled over the sound system, filling time between sets. Leslie Hughes, Leslie Hughes, where are you? One of your sons has been playing poker backstage and just gambled away your house. No, really, we need you to sign the papers. I had laughed along with the laid-back Midsummer crowd. But now I would be gambling my house for real and it wasn't funny at all. Still, almost anything seemed better than going down in history as a supporter of anti-Semitism, especially after a lifetime of active resistance. I'm tired of the constant loop of headaches and stomach pains, recurring anxiety, anger and loneliness that's corroding my life. I'm weary of waking up with my fists clenched. I will not continue to live dreading the arrival of morning. A politically savvy friend of mine emails me a famous internet cartoon featuring two dramatically different dogs. A small, nondescript mutt is looking up, way up, at a massive hound several stories high. The gigantic hound is looking down with serene indifference. The mutt is saying... Fuck you. I, the mutt, emerge from my laughter with a new posture. I will get out the Bob Marley tunes. I will get up, stand up, stand up for my rights. I'm Canadian. I have plenty of them, eh? I will hold my nose, and only because there's no place else to go, I will take me to a lawyer.